Matthew chapter 23, the seventh and the final woe that Jesus pronounces to the scribes and Pharisees. Before I read it, I want to just briefly set up the text with a series of questions related to the murder and the death of those who have died innocently. In one sense, human history can be summarized as a story of innocent blood. For much of human history, it appears that that story of innocent blood has gone unavenged. Many times when people have died for doing no particular thing at all, as soon as the blood stains the ground, it is forgotten and passed over. Think of the very first story of innocent blood in the Bible. Genesis chapter 4. Did Abel's blood really ever quiet down? Did it silence anything? While Abel's blood was shrieking from the ground, more blood was added in chapter 4. What's the very next story? Cain kills his brother Abel, and the text tells us that his blood speaks, it cries out from the ground. The very next story is about Cain and his children, and one of them, further down his line, Lamech, is, it said, ten times more violent than Cain is, murdering people. You don't have to leave chapter 4 to realize that this world is full of murder and blood spilled. In other words, the earth, from Genesis 4 till today, to city streets in Chicago, to all around our country and our world, the earth is shrieking with cries from innocent blood that has been shed. And so here's the question. Is anyone listening? Especially you, God. Does he care? Does anyone even hear? I believe our text of scripture that I'm about to read answers the question. Jesus answers the question about the bloodshed of the innocent. Let's read it together. It's Matthew chapter 23. And we're going to start in verse 29. I'm going to read till verse 36. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and you decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying that if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes and some of you who will kill and crucify and some of you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. All right, the question was, is anyone listening? Can anyone hear God? Do you care? Do you care about the innocent who've been murdered? I don't think I need to point out the news headlines over the last couple months to say the relevance of this text. I don't think that 
Any of you need a recap of people who have died and been slain, whether they're African-Americans by a police officer or whether they are storefront owners because of rooting and lighting, uh, looting and rioting? I think the question for us today is, is anyone listening, does God care about innocent bloodshed should hopefully perk our ears up today and have us examine, okay, what does Jesus have to say about this issue? And I'd say the simple answer, the big idea, the one thing you should take away is that Jesus answers yes. Yes, God is listening. Yes, God hears the cries of the innocent blood that has been shed. The blood cries out and the blood avenger, the God who made ears, he hears in heaven. And he is the rightful judge of all the earth. He will do what is right. Now, I want to pause for a moment. And, and again, kind of as a, a preface for the remainder, remainder of our time and the, the rest of my comments. I want to maybe throw out a warning. If you don't want to be potentially, if you don't want to be offended, then you probably should stop listening. And I don't necessarily mean everybody will be offended. But knowing our culture, knowing the rampant individualism that infests our soul, and we just think that we live in this bubble of ourselves, and that we're not really associated or connected to anything or anyone else around us more often than not, this passage of scripture just shatters that worldview. The, the words that Jesus is saying here and the meaning of them do not make much sense unless we have a concept of some sort of corporate solidarity. Let me explain what I mean. Jesus does answer the question in the affirmative. Is anyone listening? Does anyone care? He says, look down at the text, verse 35. So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. All of that bloodshed from Abel, Genesis chapter 4 to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. And some of you might be like, uh, Bill, help me out with that one. Don't know who that is. It's a son of a prophet, uh, a priest, that is, sorry. Uh, Berechiah would have been the high priest in the temple. And it says, as you see here in the text, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. But if you read your Bibles and you know your Old Testament quite well, some of you might know that that story is told in, in Second Chronicles. Now, now, here's the real tricky part. I hope all of you will, will stick with me here. Okay, the first book of the Bible is Genesis, right? So if you're starting out, you're reading in Genesis. And the first murder of innocent blood is Genesis 4, Abel. And if I'm a Jewish person and I don't have an English translation of my Bible, the last book of my Bible as a Jewish person, and who's Jesus talking to? Jewish people. And do they have a New Testament yet? They do not. So all they have is the Old Testament. You guys tracking with me here? Their first book in their Bible is Genesis. And the last book in their Bible is not Malachi, like it is in your Bible. The Hebrew Bible goes from Genesis and it ends in 2 Chronicles. 
So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying like from A to Z, from beginning to end, from the first bloodshed to the last innocent bloodshed. That's his point. It's, it's, a, it's a figure of speech. Jesus saying, on you may come all of the innocent righteous blood that was shed on the earth from the very first innocent blood of Abel to the very last innocent blood that was recorded in the book of Chronicles. Is it starting to make sense why I said, that's kind of offensive to your individual individualism on you on you you will be judged and punished for Abel for Zachariah these people weren't even alive then why is that bloodshed being put onto the scribes and Pharisees that Jesus is talking about how does this work now, our, our first thought might be when we think that Jesus is answering this in the affirmative, saying that all the blood that was shed innocently will have a definitive answer and that all the Old Testament blood will be avenged. Immediately, a lot of us are going to want to jump right to the cross. We're going to say, well, it's because of the blood that's shed by Jesus that his death will wipe away that innocent blood. It will avenge all innocent sufferers. And friends, let me just say that's true. Like there is a real sense to which that is the answer of the Bible. However, that is not the answer Jesus gives here. The plot thickens. The tension in the text tightens. Instead, Jesus says that all the blood will fall on this generation of the city of Jerusalem. The current generation that sees Jesus, hears him, rejects him, crucifies him, and then after he ascends to heaven and he sends out more, as he says in his text here, therefore, verse 34, I will send you prophets and wise men and scribes and some of you. What will you do in the future? Future tense here? When I send you more messengers and teachers of the good word of God, you're going to kill and crucify and flog them in your synagogues and persecute them from town to town. By the way, that language is almost identical to several statements Jesus made in Matthew chapter 10. For any of you tracking along in this long sermon series in Matthew, in Matthew 10, Jesus sends out his disciples and he says, you're going to be killed, you're going to be dragged, you're going to be flogged from town to town. And so Jesus predicts it yet again. And he tells not his disciples that that will happen. He tells the very people who are going to do it. This is what you're going to do. And he says, therefore, all this bloodshed will have an answer and it will come on this generation by the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple. That's the answer. His answer is not his blood being shed on the cross. His answer is that God will bring judgment on this current generation of the Israelite scribes, Pharisees, and Jewish representation of the people of God by destroying the temple. What? Destroying the temple? Where's that in the text? Look at the very next section, verse 37 to 39, and look at verse 38. See, your house is left to you desolate. He jumps immediately to say, you see what's happening here? All that bloodshed, it's going to be accounted for. 
and it is going to come down on the city of Jerusalem and more specifically on your house, which is a reference to the temple. You're like, really? I'm not sure that that's what he's talking about. We'll read the next few verses, verse 24. I mean, chapter 24, verses 1 and 2. Jesus left the temple, which is the house that he's just referring to. And as he was going away, when the disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, he answered them, you see all these? Do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here on one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This is the direction that Jesus is talking about in this speech to the scribes and Pharisees and to his disciples. Judgment is coming. And we already know that that judgment did come. In AD 70, these words of Jesus came true. Prior to AD 70, the words of the killing and the flogging and the beating of Jesus' disciples also came true. These men that Jesus is talking to are murderers in the making. So then, let's circle back around. Why is Abel's blood being charged to the present day scribes and Pharisees in Jerusalem? Why must Jerusalem suffer from Cain's sin all the way back in Genesis chapter 4? Like, we're talking way, way far away. I mean, Cain isn't even an Abrahamic descendant of the Jewish people. There's not even like a family solidarity of like, well, he's one of us in that sense. Now, surely, as we have pointed out, these scribes and Pharisees are like Cain. They are certainly sons of Cain, murderers. Why do the sons, though, suffer for the sins of their father? That doesn't seem fair, does it? Plus, he doesn't just say Cain. I mean, Cain in and of itself is, I think, surely offensive to our individualism. But he says all the bloodshed by Israelites through all the centuries is going to be charged to one single generation of residents of Jerusalem. I'm hoping that you're starting to understand why I'm saying, whoa, this, this kind of ruffles some feathers. How, how is this fair is the question. Why should they be punished for any of these people's blood, Abel or Zechariah? And the answer, I believe, is found by knowing the character of God, especially that passage in Exodus chapter 34, when God reveals himself to Moses. Do you know these words? The Lord, the Lord, I'm slow to anger. I'm compassionate. I'm patient. The answer to part of these questions is that God displays his patience throughout human history. When Adam sinned, was the very next story the flood? When Adam sinned, God waited to judge the earth until it was filled to the brim with violence. He did not destroy the northern kingdom as soon as Jeroboam set up golden calves or even when Ahab built an altar to Baal in Samaria. He didn't destroy Judah after the sins of that horrible king, Manasseh. Throughout Israelite and human history, when people sin, God waits. He is patient. He allows time for repentance, and he repeatedly will send prophets and messengers, voices of reason and hope, again and again and again, all the while trying to call Israel and his people back to himself. Only after repeated attempts 
to try and woo and encourage and exhort the people of Israel, does then God bring justice and judgment? Similarly, in the very story that we're reading right here, these men, do you remember Matthew 21, the parable that I just read, and how at the end of him telling that parable, it said, they perceived that Jesus is talking about us. And it's kind of like, yeah, he is. He's saying you're a bunch of murderers and you're trying to kill Jesus. And they like got it. And they're like wanting to arrest him and kill him. But they didn't because they were afraid because they perceived he was a prophet. And sure enough, he is. He's the greatest and the last of all the prophets. And Jesus is the perfect prophet, priest, and king. The full embodiment of God's messenger and mediator. So when these scribes and Pharisees actually fulfill their desires and their plans and they kill Jesus, does God immediately judge Jerusalem? Or do we see yet again this theme of the patience of God? Is there any more precious blood in all the world that was spilled onto the earth that, it, that should be crying out for vengeance and saying that I was completely innocent? than the blood of Jesus. Jesus' blood is the blood of the greater Abel, but it is not the end. God let Jerusalem and these scribes and Pharisees continue to drink down not only Jesus' blood, but Stephen's blood in Acts chapter 7, or Jesus' half-brother James, or the hundreds of Christian martyrs afterwards in the next several decades. And he let the cup fill to the brim, and when it's full, he acts. He acts and comes crashing down on Jerusalem and destroys the temple. So the answer, will God act? Does he hear the cries of the innocent? Will he ever avenge their blood? As I mentioned before, it is an emphatic yes from Jesus. So that on you, all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. But I still think we've not fully answered the question. Why is it fair that Israel and Jesus' present day Israelites be punished for the blood of righteous men like Abel? And this is where you need to understand the context of who he's talking to. Israel is not just any ethnicity. They're a special, called out, elect, chosen people. They are a priestly nation. They are to be a nation that keeps God's house and represents humanity on behalf of God to the rest of the nations. This is a very special, prominent place that they're in. They are to be like sin bearers among the rest of the nations a priest that bears the burdens of others. Like the animals of the temple sacrifices, so the whole nation of Israel is a representative priestly nation. Read Exodus chapter 19. You are to be a kingdom of priests. Not just have a few priests in your kingdom. Your whole kingdom is a priestly kingdom that represents itself before all the other nations. God's plan for salvation and his way to interact with the world is through the nation of Israel. So then they were to take the burden of the worshiper's sin, sin and then offer their animal sacrifices in the temple and then those ascend to heaven in its place. 
Therefore, Jerusalem is the city of God's temple and his presence, the priestly center of the priestly nation that bears the sins not only of the the nation of Israel, but bears the sins of the nations. Because it is through them that all of the nations will find healing and forgiveness of sin and restoration with God. That's their role. That's why it's particularly poignant for Jesus to point to them and say, on you now will this blood be on your head. So when the flood of Roman armies destroy the world of the temple in Jerusalem and make way for a new world as the judgment comes and cleanses out that old guard of Judaism, the fall of the city of Jerusalem is not some minor event that's happening in the corner of history in the Mediterranean world. The fall of Jerusalem is in part God's continuing answer to innocent blood that is shed. And Jesus looks at murderers in their face and says, you will give an account for this. And even though it didn't come the very next day or the next week or the next month, it came. Literally. Judgment came. So then God answers to evil. The question then is, is God listening? Does he care about Ahmed Aubrey? Breonna Taylor? Does he care about George Floyd? Police officers that have been slain innocently? Let me just go down the list. Does he care? Yes, he will judge murderers and they will be held accountable for their sin. And so then that begs the question, what does this have to do with with us? Well, first and foremost, as readers and listeners to this word, are you making the same mistake of these scribes and Pharisees? Have you truly welcomed Jesus or have you rejected him? Have you realized that Jesus is taking upon himself all of the innocent blood and his own innocent blood being mingled with theirs becomes the final act of great love and justice all in one cross? Or do you prefer, like the crowds, to welcome Jesus, sing Hosanna, and then when it doesn't quite fit with your agenda, start shouting crucify him a few days later? Jesus wants us, like these men, to renounce our heritages, renounce the fathers and ancestors of our world that have shed blood. If we have any correlation with any group, family, any history, with something that is preying on the innocent and leading to their harm or ultimately their deaths, notice, notice the way Jesus corrects them in verse 30. He says, you all say that if we had lived in the days of our fathers, that we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the, the blood of the prophets. This, this is you and me, my friends. Many of us will, will take that move like, well, I certainly wouldn't do that. I'm not like those scribes and Pharisees. I, I would never do that. Jesus says, you witness against yourself that you are sons. He's basically saying, we would never do that with our fathers. Like, wait, wait, you're calling them 
fathers, you're, you're wanting to hitch your wagon to that blood flow throughout human history? One key thing here is we need to understand that this passage of Scripture doesn't make much sense, as I've mentioned, with our kind of bubble-minded individualism, because Jesus is saying that you're all lumped together in some way. You're all going to need to be held accountable for the sins of your fathers. If you're, if you're going to attach yourself to the fathers, well, then you're going to go down with the fathers. As it became quite evident that father, like son, just like they murdered the prophets, so these scribes and Pharisees murdered Jesus, the ultimate greatest prophet. So I want you to be thinking through, in what allegiances do you need to renounce? In what areas of, of your life are, are you holding on to or clinging to, to something that is part of the fallen, broken world that God is going to judge and cleanse? Just like these scribes and Pharisees, we need to consider renouncing fathers, hating our parents for the sake of the kingdom. Additionally, I think we should be thinking about the question of vengeance and injustice. How long will the Lord let the blood of unborn babies fill our land? How long will he allow Muslims to kill Christians? How long will he let Christian pastors oppress sheep and abuse women? I don't know. But I'll tell you this. The end of Jerusalem is a historical proof that he's not going to let it go on forever. It's a sobering reminder to each one of us. So as you look at your life and you wonder, how much longer is God going to let me suffer under the harsh treatment of a boss, a spouse, maybe my parents or my children, teachers, friends, enemies? How long will he let this injustice stand? How much more longer will these riots go on? Or the police brutality? We, we don't know, but what we do know is that the God who lives, the God who is, he does care, he does listen, and he has and he will do something. He destroyed his own city. He allowed his own son to hang on a cross so that there would be a way out. The good news of the end of Jerusalem is that God hears. The good news of the destruction of the temple is that God's ear is open and listening. It is not stuffed. Be patient, my friends. Endure the injustices around you with the hope that our God is a just and righteous God. And there is a way of escape for all of us. Next week, we're going to consider this more fully. But look at that last little part of chapter 23. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I want this image to be in your head. Jesus, the mother hen, the farm is about to burn. The sparks are already sparked in the, the barn. 
and the whole farmland is coming down. It's crashing. Jesus is predicting it so, and it's just right around the corner. And he says, I would like to be the mother hen that takes you underneath of my wings so that I get burned and that you live. There's this old legend, I think it's fake, but it at least illustrates the point. Preachers like to use this story, so here we go. There's this old legend that there's these firefighters that were putting out a fire in a uh, forest fire in the woods. I think somewhere out west, let's just say California for the sake of moving on with the story here. And as they were doing so, they, they saw a crisp burned mother hen and when they knocked the, the hen over, a, a bunch of chicks come scurrying out underneath of the wings, alive, protected. What, what an image. This is what Jesus is saying here. The seventh and final woe. Seven, the number of full completion. We've, we've noticed that there's pairs. The first two woes the third and fourth woe, the fifth and sixth woe, now the seventh and final is, guys, the fire on the temple is coming. It's burning around the corner. And I, all I want to do, the, my deepest longing in my heart is to gather you underneath of my wings and protect you from that fire. But you don't want it. So the call comes yet again. Will you be willing to find refuge under the wings of Jesus Christ under the shadow of his cross and realize that you will either be convicted as a murderer or you will be set free by the blood of Jesus, the innocent shed blood of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we want to come now with gratitude in our hearts. Our gratitude, first and foremost, that you listen that your ears, they work. You are not deaf. You hear our prayers now and you hear our cries. You hear the cries of those who are suffering. You hear the cries of those who have murdered. You know about every drop of blood that's been spilled of innocent sufferers. How many times, God, have we heard stories and we shake our head and it makes our stomach sick to think, it's not right. God, we're thankful that we don't have to shake our fists up to the heavens wondering, where are you or what are you doing? Your sending of Jesus into the world and this story of how you have treated the nation of Israel, all of it working together teaches us you're going to get involved. You care and you stand up for injustice unlike anyone else in the world by allowing that injustice to fall on your own head through the blood of Jesus suffering in our place. Lord, I pray that today we will be freshly given hope of your righteous judgment and the way that you took that judgment that we deserve and absorbed the wrath and your anger towards sinners and murderers, even us, on the cross. So Lord, give us wisdom as we think about our nation's own issues and the own, our, our own injustices and help us to not attach our hitch or our wagon to any kind of group or any kind of 
society that is going to further the injustice. Lord, we want to pray that Embassy Church would be full of disciples that want fully to be aligned with and give total allegiance to Jesus. His gospel message, his forgiveness and love toward all people, and ultimately his care about the oppressed and the hurting and the innocent sufferers. Lord, give us this grace in Jesus' name. Amen.